Hey everybody, welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's the weekly podcast of Tablet Magazine. I'm Sarah Ivory, your host. Today, we're talking about Babs, the early years. In 1960, Barbara Streisand was a 17-year-old kid from Brooklyn trying to make it big in Manhattan. By 1964, she was the top-selling female recording artist in the United States, and she was starring in the hugely popular Broadway musical Funny Girl. How She Got From A to B is the subject of a new biography by William Mann. The book is called Hello Gorgeous, Becoming Barbra Streisand. Mann is not new to exploring the person behind the myth when it comes to American goddesses. He's also written about Elizabeth Taylor and Katharine Hepburn. We're talking with him today about what he discovered about the first years of Streisand's career and how that changes our understanding of this American icon. Bill Mann, welcome to Box Tablet. Thank you for having me. So there have been a lot of biographies written about Barbara Streisand. What did you feel was missing from those biographies that led you to write your own? I've always been fascinated by how a star becomes a star. In my other biographies, it wasn't so much I didn't wasn't so much concerned about the marriages and the scandals and the you know the movies and the romances and all of that. I, I I'm kind of interested more in the process behind the uh, the machinery. You know, the, the the what makes a star? How do they sell the star? How do they come up with the idea? How do they maintain it? How do they get it out there? How do they merchandise it? And with Streisand, what really interested me with her because I wasn't uh, I, I, I wasn't a fan fan. You know, I always admired her like her work, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't dying to know all of the, the details of all of her movies and records and all of that. What interested me was how she went from really being just this kid who shows up one day in, in Manhattan from Brooklyn with no connection, no money, and how did she do it? Because in five years' time, less than five years' time, she became this huge, huge star. Now, Streisand's humble beginnings are essential to her story's appeal. They dovetail with the idea that anybody with a heart and with talent and with a little bit of ambition can make it in America. Can you get us briefly through those early years to 1960, when she was 17, where you really start the book? I mean, what was her initial uh, childhood and life like? It really was what I kept in mind when I wrote this book was this is a Cinderella story. It's Cinderella goes to the ball and, you know, and she how she gets there. I mean, but in, in this case, Barbara Streisand didn't have a fairy godmother came down. She had to figure out a way to do it all by herself. And so she was she was a poor kid, you know, grew up in, in Brooklyn. Her father died soon after she turned one years old. So she never knew him. He was always this empty void in her life. She was always wishing she had her father. She mythologized her father in many ways. Her mother was very, very distant and um, very, very poor. I mean, they, they, you know, she, she would talk about how they wouldn't have a couch because, you know, they had to live in the living room, you know, of her grandparents' apartment, you know, and so they had to get rid of the couch so there was a place for them to sleep. So it was really tough. Her mother uh, remarried um, at, at one point. I think Barbara was about nine or ten, and her stepfather was very cruel to her. She has terrible memories of, of living with uh, her stepfather. All she could think of from, from the time she was about seven years old, she says, she had an uncontrollable itch to get out of there, to get out into the world. And her mother kept telling her, you know, just get a job. You got to take what you can get from the world and, you know, just be satisfied with your lot. And Barbara didn't buy it. She was like, okay, I'm tired of the tenements. I'm tired of being told that I can't make it. I'm tired that I'm t- being told that I'm not pretty enough. I'm going to get out there and I'm going to make it in the world. And, and that's really what is so fascinating about her. Where you see the reality of her early years diverge from the myth is this idea that uh, she went in alone. I mean, yes, it's true. She came from humble origins. That is not mythology. 
But in fact, in your book, you show that she didn't really create who she was in the early years. She didn't make a name for herself in Manhattan completely uh, by herself. Who who did she pull in to help her? Right. Well, there were there were several key important players that really helped create this phenomenon of Barbara Streisand, and that's not that's true with every star. You know, I mean, no one kind of does it all on their own. But I think what was became important for Streisand's legend was to make it seem as if she kind of emerged fully formed. You know. And jumped out of you know nowhere, and the whole world acclaimed her. But that was a very conscious choice on her handler's part to kind of make it seem that there was no um, no shenanigans, no kind of publicity campaigns behind her to get her out there. But of course, there were, and and she had brilliant managers, a, a man named Marty Ehrlichman, who's still with her today. He, from the early on, he saw that, okay, this is a very special um, creature, and I can I can really, you know, bring her to the public's attention. She had some terrific publicists um, who early on kind of said, okay, you know what, if you play up that kook angle, you know, we're going to get you on TV more than we can on, you know, if, if you didn't play up the kook angle. Yet, you know, as I always point out, though, if she turned out to be not as spectacular as they were saying she was, she would have crashed and burned like so many people before. Her. But as it turned out, she really was as spectacular as they were promoting her. And so, of course, once she had the chance to shine, the whole world did come. But it didn't happen overnight. It took There was an awful lot of behind-the-scenes maneuvering. And she didn't actually intend on being a singer, right? She didn't right. come to Manhattan with that dream. She came with another dream. Exactly. She wanted to be an actress. In fact, a couple of her early singing engagements, she kept saying, you know, I, I can't renew this. I don't want to do another gig here because... I'm not out looking for acting work, and I, you know, they're not. I'm, I'm going to miss out on something. Barbara really saw herself as being a great, serious actress. Um, you know, it was it was Doozy or Sarah Bernhardt. That's who she wanted to be. She didn't want to be Judy Garland, and yet, you know, that seemed to be her fate more and more. Her first gigs, as you point out, uh, were in nightclubs, and not everybody responded to her. Uh, with such enthusiasm, although many people did right. uh, find her, you know, electrifying. What exactly were they responding to? How different she was. You know, she they, they really responded to this this kind of unusual looking girl who got up in kind of unusual looking clothes and had this voice of an angel, but then also interrupted her her singing with this kind of, you know, wisecracking kind of kooky persona. The kooky is the word that they use back then all the time. It was the buzzword for it. everybody described Barbara Streisand as kooky. And there was never anybody like that. Nightclub singers were supposed to come in in, you know, these elegant gowns. And, you know, she came and dressed, you know, like she was from 1925. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with these kind of lace-up shoes. And and so it was, it was a whole persona persona that set her apart. Let's listen to one of the songs that made her popular in those early days. Do you have a favorite that kind of captures that magic? I think those early days was Crimea River. She was so powerful on that song. Now you say you're sorry for being so untrue You can cry me a river, cry me a river. I cried a river over you. You drove me, nearly drove me out of my head while you never shed a tear. Remember? 
Told me love was too plebeian Told me you were through with me Now you say a lot of people also took note of her quote-unquote unclassical looks, which of course seems like a very polite way of saying the girl looks ethnic, she looks Jewish, right. she has a big nose. Right. And there were people who were much more frank in their description of how she looked. Uh, and that of course brings home just how unusual her appearance was in right. the American mainstream. I mean, she did not look like Katherine Hepburn. Right. You know, She didn't right. have an aquiline, right. waspy affect. Right. Were you taken aback by some of the descriptions of her in the reviews, in the papers? Yeah, absolutely. They, they, some people were truly cruel. I mean, they would they, they would say, you know, um, she's got an anteater's snout, you know, oh and gosh. they'd say, you know, they'd say, you know, one, one variety at one point said, you know, what if if she wants to be a character actress all her life, um, fine, but if she really wants to be a leading lady, then she needs to plane down that nose, you know. And to Barbara's credit, she said, you know, I, I'm not going to do that. I mean, she knew that. For, for one thing, um, I think if she had ever tried to change her nose, it would have affected the, her, her voice. She wouldn't have sounded the way she did. But also, it was personal for her. That her nose was her father's nose. And she, you know, this was a man that she deified. That she, and she said, to change that about my face would be to, to somehow deny him, to deny this, this, this love, this image that I have for him. And so it became a very personal thing for her. Though she did consider it. There were, t- there were some times when she said, you know, maybe I should. I should listen. Maybe I should. But... I think she also knew that if I do, I'm no longer extraordinary. I'm no longer different. And it was her difference that was getting her attention. I want to get back to this quality of the kook, of her being kind of kooky that you mentioned earlier. How much of that was true and how much of that was artifice? I mean, it does seem from the book that some of that was inherently how she was, that she had a kind of like wisecracking uh, gumption about her that was a little bit offbeat. Absolutely. There's, there, there's a lot of biographical truth in that public image. Um, she did talk that way. She she did have that kind of way with words. And her publicists recognized that. They said, this is something that we can use. What happened was, was that, you know, she was told every time you go out on, on an interview, every time you get up on a stage, you've really got to, you know, push that. And there were times she didn't want to. She was kind of like, let me just sing the song. You know, I don't have to be funny. I don't have to be, you know, self deprecating all the time, but they pushed it because what was happening was the same time that she was singing on in these nightclubs, she was getting television work. And and they kept asking her back for these television shows, Ed Sullivan's show, um, um, the Jack Parr show, because she was funny and quirky and unexpected. She would say things that nobody expected, you know, some kid to say on sitting on national television. And so it worked very well for her. What I think is so interesting is that the kook disappears later on after it was no longer needed. I mean, we don't, we think of Barbara Streisand in many ways now. We don't think of her as a kook. We think of her as kind of this classy lady. And, uh, you know, back then, though, she was definitely this offbeat character. In the book, you offer wonderful details of her early television appearances on Jack Parr, on Ed Sullivan, on Mike Wallace's show, PM East. Would you share with our listeners a little bit of her uh, fraught relationship with Mike Wallace. You go into some great detail about that. Well, when two narcissists meet, and, and I say that in a <laughs> loving way, it's it's like, you know, these two people who were like, no, I'm the star. No, I'm the star. And and they always had this struggling relationship. And he would, you know, he would look at her rings or her fingernails and say, you know what, you're just, you're, it's all about affectation with you. You're, you know, in some ways he was calling the the lie to the publicity saying like, you know, come on, you know, you're this whole kook thing, you're just doing it to get attention. And part of it, he loved because it was giving his show good ratings. But on the other hand, I 
there was something about her, and he actually said it when they finally um, met years later to do the 60 Minutes interview, was, you know, I never really liked you very much. And, and, she, and she, she, she said, well, I kind of felt that. Well, let's listen to a little bit of tape from that initial appearance on PM East from 1961. You know something? Yeah. While, while you're singing this time, and we've yes. listened to this beautiful voice that you have, I want our audience to decide whether she looks more like Fanny Bryce or Judith Anderson. Like you asked me before where I come from. Yes. And I told you Brooklyn because I told you the truth. Yes. But like in Detroit, they think I come from Turkey. Yeah. In St. Louis, they think I come from Israel. And now she's going to sing a Chinese song. No, no. I just want to say that I don't want... You see, it doesn't matter where I come from. You don't want to be you, classified. That's right, because when you say I come from Brooklyn, everybody has an image. Oh, she comes from Brooklyn. She's that kind of performer. Oh, listen, you forgot to, to mention the play I was in. What play? The off-Broadway play. What's the name of it? Another Evening with Harry Stoons. You saw the first evening, didn't you? And you're playing with Harry? I mean, you're playing Harry Stoons, are you? Harry B. Stoons. Oh, all right. No, no. Come to it's the... It's opening up at the Gramercy Arts Theater, October 16th. Call me a boob. Call me a schlemiel. Call me a brain with a missing wheel. Call me what you will. But nonetheless, I'm still in love. She didn't like it when people introduced her by saying that she was from Brooklyn. Was Brooklyn also an indirect way of saying that she was Jewish or some other kind of uh, pejorative uh, circumstance? Absolutely, you can you can you can hear the anti-Semitism in the in the um, oh she's from Brooklyn. You know she's she's one of those singers from Brooklyn. And Barbara knew that. In fact, she says you know every time I say I'm a singer from Brooklyn, they think oh I know what that means. You know so she was very aware of of the uh, hostility that 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 it generated in some. Streisand's big break came with her first record, which was called the Barbara Streisand Album, and it made its way to the top of the Billboard charts in 1963. If you listen to it, what's really striking is how different popular music then was uh, from popular music today. It's true, but in some ways, it, it was different even then too with that album because it wasn't. Um, there was no rock and roll. I mean, this is the same time as you know Leslie Gore and Elvis Presley, and and uh, you know she was coming out with music that at first Columbia Records said, "This is who's this going to sell to?" You know, the, the teenagers aren't going to buy this. You know, and the grandparents are they going to buy? I mean, it was this kind of you know. Does does Barbara Streisand actually have a mainstream audience that's big enough? I mean, yes, the urban hipsters were were into her, going to her nightclubs and things like that. But you know, gay men. I mean, it, but that was it. I mean, was that big enough to sell throughout the country? And the big surprise was, whoa, it was because it, it, you know it took a while for it to find its audience. But the album did eventually catch on and, and reached almost to number one. It is interesting. You make the point toward the end of the book that uh, in 1964, when she finally was in Funny Girl was the same year that the Beatles arrived. Right. And uh, they are contemporaries. I mean, they're all Absolutely. the same age, really. But Absolutely. the audience, the fan base, is so radically different for both of them. I wonder if she felt uh, uh, not necessarily hostility, but uh, competition with them, and if she tried at all to tailor her uh, affect to appeal to this kind of youth market that seemed to be just eating up the British invasion. By the later part of the 1960s, the, uh, the Columbia Records was pushing her to do just that. You know, the youth market became so important. Um, and that really happened with the Beatles. It was part of the, the later part of the, the decade when the youth market became, you know, if you don't make money with the youth market, you're not going to make the kind of money we're interested in. So eventually she did try that. But, you know, for, from 63, 64, 65, she was very fortunate because there wasn't that kind of pressure. She didn't have to kind of go after it. Um, 
And her sound, I think, um, also did appeal to a certain subset of the youth market, though. I mean, one of the fascinating parts of the, the book, I think, were, was when I interviewed some of the former funny girl kids, these, these teenagers who just adored her. They dressed like her, and they were, all the, they were all the misfits. They were the ones who didn't quite fit in at school and, you know, were you know, maybe somehow different from the rest, and they were buying her albums. So she had that, that crossover appeal, um, at least among the, the, um, the more alternative types of, of kids. You make no secret of the fact that Barbara in those early years was very egocentric and narcissistic, and she tended to keep close to her only those people who would support her and help her realize her dreams. For you as a biographer, does that detract from your admiration for her? And do you think that fans also see that side of her? You know, I don't think you can become as big as Barbara became without having a healthy dose of narcissism. I mean, you can't become the greatest star in the world if you don't believe you really are the greatest star in the world. And so I, I actually doesn't detract from my um, respect for her. I actually admire her even more because she had the, the conviction of her beliefs. She went out and did it. She really did believe herself. Yeah, I think in time she didn't always treat everybody the best, but who, we all have, we've all done things like that. I mean, and I think most people recognize, even the fans recognize that that drive that which was partly propelled by a certain uh, narcissism um, was is what made her so special. Um, she would probably argue that um, you know she she's never um, denied that anybody didn't help her that she left anybody along the way, and it's hard. I, I would imagine you know when you become as big as Barbara Streisand and the people around you haven't become that big. It's kind of hard to keep them all in your orbit. And that's that might sound cruel, that might sound hard, but it's also realistic. Uh, you know, how do you keep everybody that you used to hang out with in your world when you're now being flown over for a meeting with the queen? You know what I mean? It's, it's, <laughs> it's just difficult, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't really know. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't either. I'm, I'm simply... I would like to I, I'm, I'm presuming. I'm presuming. <laughs> now, you end the book in 1964. Yes. At when she did uh, finally land the role of Fanny Bryce, and it was to great acclaim. People thought she was marvelous. And it gave her the chance finally to be what she had originally sought, which was an actor. Why did you decide to end the book there? Well, originally, I was actually going to end it in 1968 when she wins the Oscar for, for the film version of Funny Girl. But I was getting so much material about these early years that I said, this book will go on forever. Um, so I decided to end it there because actually the arc of the story that I was telling does end there. Um, she goes from being an unknown to suddenly being world-renowned. So to, to continue that story past, it becomes a whole other story. There is another arc. It's, you know, my book is Barbara Goes to Broadway. There's another book that perhaps is Barbara Goes to Hollywood. Um, but you know, I thought by the ending in 1964, we we see the culmination of all of her dreams, and really, what we see also is the um, the paradigm that kind of shaped the rest of her life. Because once she achieves one dream, it's it, she looks and says, "Well, what else can I do?" And so she was at that plateau in 1964. Okay, I'm a, I'm a star on Broadway. That's what I said I want to do. Now what do I do? You know, and it was okay. Well, there's Hollywood. I'll try that. And then after that, it became well. Now I need to direct movies. Now I need to. You know, so she really. Um, it, it was the first plateau of her career, and uh, from there she just continued to climb. I wonder at what point the dream became. I want to go play at a new stadium that will eventually be built in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. You know, <laughs> it becomes that. You know. 
and and you know she's now at this place where what I find fascinating about about all of that is that she's never liked performing live even back in, back in the days of the Bone Soir and you know the little nightclubs you know she would prefer to be you know in a studio recording or she'd prefer to be you know uh, making a movie she doesn't like performing live and so this, the fact that she's still doing it you know give her her props you know let's go out with a song why don't you pick one I think the song that so defined her in those early years was Happy Days Are Here Again. She took this, this you know, pep rally song and turned it into this sublime kind of meditation on happiness and sadness and tragedy and triumph. And, and it really was like nothing ever before. And it, it really defines those early years. Happy days are here again this Are clear again. So let's sing a song of cheer again. Happy days are here again. All together, shouting. Bill Mann, also known as William Mann on the book cover, is the author of Hello Gorgeous, Becoming Barbara Streisand. It's just out from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Now, judging from an informal survey we did on social media in getting ready for this conversation, it became clear that Barbara Streisand continues to be someone who produces passionate feelings, whether positive or negative, from the public. We want to know where you stand. Do you love her? Do you hate her? Are you indifferent? And what do you think of her music? What's your favorite song? Let us know. Post a comment on our website, tabletmag.com. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. We thank you as ever for listening, and we sure hope you'll join us again next time.